0: Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you again today. And thank you to the band. Thank you to um, Erin, who was good enough to bring her mum and dad along with her today, and her brother Oscar, as well as Sam, of course. Thank you to you all. Um, If you have your Bibles, you'd like to turn to John chapter 18. This morning, we um, come to the second in our series entitled uh, Countdown to the Cross, And so today we look at chapter 18 of John's Gospel and we're going to read the first 12 verses. And this is the account of Jesus' betrayal and arrest according to John. Um, As we read this account, uh, those who are familiar with your Bibles may well notice how different John's account of Jesus' arrest is. And um, in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke Um, the account is quite different and written from a different point of view. So we're studying John's today. This is what the text has to say. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. jesus of nazareth jesus said to them i am he judas who betrayed him was standing with them when jesus said to them i am he they drew back and fell to the ground so he asked them again whom do you seek and they said jesus of nazareth he answered i told you that i am he So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Now, this is the story of Jesus' betrayal. And uh, it's easy to talk about betrayal... Uh, when you're um, removed from it, when you're disengaged from it. But when betrayal is part of your experience, when betrayal becomes a real part of your experience, the bite of betrayal goes very deep. And so, for example, when we are lied to, or when we're cheated on, or when we are defrauded or when we're in any other way taken advantage of, we feel betrayed. And in human experiences, that feeling of betrayal is a deep experience. It's one that we we feel that goes to our very core. It begins, do you know, even in primary school, where in in every class, I'm sure, in the the world, in, in primary schools, there are some children who experience being someone's best friend today, but tomorrow are told that they're no longer their best friend and that they don't want to play with them and they don't want to be with them. So even from young children, from the age of young children, they know what it is to be rejected, to be betrayed, to be uh, uh, cast aside. And as we get older, as parents, when our children lie to us, if they lie to us, we feel that deeply, because when we're talking about betrayal, when it's part of our experience, the bite goes deep. And of course, it goes no deeper than when our uh, when uh, when a, someone's marriage fails, and a husband or a wife discovers that their uh, husband or wife, uh, their partner of so many years, has been cheating on them. And suddenly, Betrayal is not a theory. Betrayal is an experience. And we can, we can imagine or we can empathize that when those circumstances unfold, as I've said, the bite of pain goes very deep. And we feel that uh, to the very core of our being. And that's where Jesus is now. Jesus is at that place of being betrayed by one who, whom he counted as his friend. It's interesting that John's gospel gives us the route that they took. It says that they went across the uh, Kidron Valley, the brook of Kidron. Now, if you've got to imagine a, my, the palm of my left hand is the city of, uh, city of Jerusalem in the time of Jesus, just this part here. Well, that route tells us that they left by the south eastern corner of the city. And as they come out through the city wall, imagine us on the route, as we come out through the city wall, we might just stop for a moment. And if we turn our gaze to the right, we would see the valley of Hinnom that runs to the southern part of the city of Jerusalem. But if we turn our eyes to the left, we see the Kidron Valley or the Brook Kidron. And just across the valley on the other side, we see the Mount of Olives. And if we are following the route that Jesus took, we would have turned left out of the city of Jerusalem and we would have walked along the Kidron Valley for a wee while and then crossed where the riverbed would be and then began to climb up the the Mount of Olives to the other side to this garden called the Garden of Gethsemane. It may well have been a walled garden because it says that they entered it. And so when they went into this wall garden, if we were to stop in the wall garden and turn and look down from our vantage point on the Mount of Olives, well, we could see the the temple courts. And we could see the city of Jerusalem if it were daylight. We could see it spread out before us. That's the route that they took. It's interesting to note that hundreds of years before that, excuse me, hundreds of years before that, the King David left Jerusalem, having been betrayed by his son Absalom, and uh, and Absalom's friend Abiathar, uh, having been betrayed, that David took exactly the same route that Jesus was to take. So many hundreds of years later, out of the southern part of the city, across the Kidron Valley, making his escape. Now, David was to return uh, 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 at a later time. Same route that John tells us about, of Jesus' betrayal. But it would be wrong of us to think of Jesus being on the back foot when he's being arrested in the garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is not to be pitied in the garden. Rather, Jesus is beginning his run-up to the cross. We're familiar with this idea of a run-up If we were to be watching athletics, and we were to be watching, say, one of the jumping events, the high jump, or perhaps the long jump or the triple jump, we would see the athlete beginning his run-up. It's before he actually participates in the event, but the run-up has begun. And when we come to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's not to be pitied, rather his run-up to the cross has begun. And he's not on the back foot, he's on the front foot because Jesus is eager to get to the cross. He's leaning forward to get to accomplish that for which God has sent him to do. He's on his run-up. Now, there's a very vivid picture of this in the Old Testament that I want to remind you of. In the Old Testament, in 1 Samuel chapter 17, we have the story of David and Goliath. And uh, the two uh, warriors meet out in the open and uh, they exchange some words. They're not particularly polite words, but they have a conversation together. Goliath, the giant, and little David, uh, 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 and they have words together. And when the words are finished, when the conversation has ended, the text tells us that Goliath moved forward towards David. And then it says that David moved towards Goliath. David began his run-up to destroy Goliath. And that's where Jesus is in John chapter 18. That's what's happening here. He, like David, moving towards Goliath, Jesus has begun his run-up. He's not to be pitied. Jesus is on the offensive. Jesus is making his final attack. He's within hours of his death and victory upon the cross and he's beginning his final uh, run up. Now I think that John's gospel spells that out for us very clearly that Jesus is not to be pitied but Jesus is the regal person that is God's representative. Turn to the text with me and notice some details that I'd like to highlight. First of all, I want you to notice Jesus' divine control. It's Jesus who comes to this group and says to them, Whom do you seek? You see, Jesus is in control here. He's the one that's taken charge. He's the one that has approached this large group of people that have come forward with their torches and their lanterns. Did you get the details? And their weapons. This group have come armed to the teeth. But Jesus is in charge. Who are you looking for? Can I help you in some way? And as they begin to uh, have that conversation, it's Jesus is the one that is in control. Notice the control, the divine control. And he steers the congregation, um, the conversation. He asks what they're looking for. And he declares that he is the one who who is to, whom they're looking for. Jesus is in control in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's not on the back foot. He's not whimpering and cowering away like a coward in the darkness uh, trying to hide from them. He has presented himself like a royal king uh, in complete control. I want you to notice the divine identity that's here. Because when he asks the question, whom do they seek? He gets the answer, Jesus of Nazareth. Or in some of the other translations, Jesus the Nazarene. And Jesus said to them in verse 5, I am he. I am he. Now, I don't know if you're following this in your Bibles, but in some translations of the Bible, I want you to notice that the word he is in italics. Often the authorized version or the New King James version will have the word he in italics. Well, do you know why it's in italics? Well, it's in italics because the translators want you to know that the word he does not appear in the original manuscripts. All that appears in the original manuscripts are the words I am. And the translators have added the word he because that makes better sense of this short sentence. But I want you to get to divine identity. Of what Jesus is saying here. does the word, Do the words I am. Remind you of anything? They remind me of the words of God to Moses. Back in Exodus chapter 3. Where, God, uh, where Moses said to God. Lord they are going to ask me who sent me. And I am going to have to say to them I don't know. And God replied to him. Tell them I am has sent you. So you see, the words I am are the divine identity. The words I am come from the verb to be. I am, he is, she is, and so on. And the verb to be in Hebrew has the four Hebrew consonants Y-H-W-H. The verb to be is where we get our name Yahweh from. And where we also get our word Lord from, because the vowels that were put in, the A and the E to make Yahweh pronounceable, those words are the uh, root of our word Lord in the Old Testament that is written with capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's where that word Lord comes from. It comes from the translation of the word Adonai. From which we, uh, uh, for, that is made from the vowels of the word Yahweh. You see, when Jesus says, I am, he's declaring that he's God. Is he in the back foot? Of course he's not. He started his run up. He has eyes on the cross. And he's making his way there with forthright determination. The victory in his mind is already won. The battle has already been fought. interestingly... It's not John's gospel that tells us of that battle, but it's the synoptic gospels that tell us of the inner struggle that Jesus had prior to his arrest. And it's in the synoptic gospels where we read of how Jesus battles within himself, Lord, if it's possible, let this cup of suffering pass from me, nevertheless... Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And after he prays that prayer three times, then the matter is settled. God, uh, Jesus has settled the thing, settled the matter in his mind, and he is now resolute on his path to the cross. So when the, when the people come to arrest him, as we read in John's gospel, the matter has already been settled and he is declaring his forthright intention to go all the way to the cross. Notice his divine identity. The other thing that it reminds me of is words of Jesus in, in John chapter 8. In John chapter 8, we have Jesus having a conversation With some of the Jews. And in that conversation, Jesus concludes by saying, Before Abraham was born, I am. John 8. Before Abraham was born, I am. Here he is in the Garden of Gethsemane declaring the divine identity. The third thing that I want you to notice I want you to notice the divine presence, a divine control, a divine identity, and now a divine presence. Because we're told as soon as he says the words, I am, that the group fell. They drew back, verse 6, I am, he said to them, and they drew back and fell to the ground. Well, you see, this is an involuntary action that is happening that, uh, that is representative of a divine presence throughout the Bible. Often when there is a divine presence, there is a human prostration on the floor where people cast, past, uh, prostrate themselves before God Almighty. A couple of examples. The most obvious one is the, on the road to Damascus when uh, the apostle uh, Saul, uh, who became the Apostle Paul, was confronted with Jesus. And as in this blinding light, he fell off his horse and was lying on the ground when he had the conversation with Jesus. You see, he was in a divine presence. And that divine presence struck him to the ground. There's another example in the book of Judges when the angel of the Lord representing the divine presence comes to Samson's parents, Manoah and his wife, and talks to them and tells them, and even though they're in their old age, they will have a son and they will call him Samson and he will be a Nazarite from birth. It tells us in the scriptures there in text that Manoah and his wife threw themselves face down on the ground before Samson. The divine presence. You see, that's what's happening here. Is Jesus on the back foot? No. People are falling at his feet. This divine presence is so real in the Garden of Gethsemane that even the soldiers, even the the, uh, um, authorities that are coming from the Jews, even those unbelievers, they fall at his feet. And he has to repeat the question as they gather themselves up and get themselves to their feet again. He says to them, who is it you're looking for? And they say, repeat it. And he said, well, I've already told you. Because the divine presence, uh, at the divine presence, they draw back and fall. Well, there's one final point I think I want to make to you this morning. I want you to notice the divine surrender. I want you to notice the divine surrender. Because as we come to the end of the passage that we read together, Peter takes it upon himself to defend Jesus as if Jesus needed defending. And he draws his sword. There's a question that rises in my mind. What on earth was Peter doing with the sword? And he has a sheath with it because Jesus tells him to put his sword back in his sheath. It's almost as if Peter was anticipating problems. And it's interesting that you can imagine Peter, when he saw the crowd arrive in the darkness in this walled garden, perhaps from which there was little escape, maybe only through one gate. And as they take up their positions at the gate, he notices the weaponry that they've come. And in Peter's mind, he's ready for a showdown. And you can imagine um, uh, uh, in uh, uh, in a hidden way, uh, unobtrusively, Peter slides his hand under his cloak and, and hand, gets his hand upon, his, upon his, his, his sword, ready for action. I wonder if Peter is thinking to himself, I will prove Jesus wrong. Because you see at an earlier time, Jesus has, uh, Peter has said to Jesus, Lord, even if I have to die with you, I will not forsake you. And Jesus replied to Peter on that occasion, before the cockerel crows, you will deny me three times. And inside, Peter's thinking, no, I won't. No, I won't. And as the crowd arrive, this arm to the teeth, so Peter thinks to himself, perhaps, Peter thinks to himself, I'll, I'll show Jesus that I mean business. And as his hand goes to his sword, and as they have gathered themselves up, and he declares who he is, and they move towards, uh, forward towards to arrest him, out comes Peter's knife. He lunges at the first person that's close to him. It happens to be Malchus, the high priest's servant, and he takes a swipe. The, the servant ducks to one side as he sees the flash of the blade come in the darkness. And it's just his ear that's caught. And it's lying. He's squealing with blood pouring from his, uh, from his fingers. And Peter's there with his knife out betwixt him between his, his saviour and the rest of the crowd. And he's saying, come on, who's next? And Jesus says, Peter. What's wrong with you? Put your sword away Peter. Quickly he picks up the ear. And heals the high priest's servant ear. And then by way of explanation. From the synoptic gospels. But not from John. From the synoptic gospels. Jesus turns to Peter and says. I have 12 legions of angels at my disposal. Do Do you know how many angels that was? About six thousand. In this cohort of soldiers, do you know how many soldiers there were in the cohort? About six hundred. And it's probably not the full cohort that has come here to arrest Jesus in the garden. Is Jesus on the back foot? No. He's. He's in divine control. He has declared his divine identity. He has proclaimed his divine presence. And now with Peter's help, he declares his divine surrender. Look at what he says at the end of the passage that we we said. Put your sword back in its sheath, Peter. Shall I not drink the cup that my father has given me? Peter, I've come for this moment. This is the whole point of it. I need to do this. Don't try and stop me. I'm the one that's in control. They're the ones to be pitied, not me. But as yet, Peter just doesn't get it. This is the second countdown to the cross. Jesus has begun his run-up. But why? Why does this all-powerful, divine person, why does God the Son in the Garden of Gethsemane have this determination to surrender himself to the will of this hostile crowd? Why does he do it? What's his point? I think that's the most important question that any human being can ever address, can ever wonder it's the most important puzzle that anybody can ever put their mind to. Why did Jesus willingly submit to the authority of the crowd and ultimately sacrifice his life upon a cross? Well, I want to suggest two reasons to you. I, first of all, I want to suggest that his motivation was one of love. We thought about love last time I preached here in church the beginning of January. As the first countdown to the cross. You see, Jesus, Jesus submitted this, this willful surrender to the authorities because his nature is love. To be more precise, because of his love for you and for me. And I think the second reason that he's there is because Jesus has a purpose, his motive is love. But his plan has a purpose. And it's a plan and a purpose that began in heaven. And he is here to do his Father's will. Now to explain that a little bit further, I want to point out just another incidental point in this. Isn't it interesting that all of this run up to the cross of Jesus, that the beginning of the run up to the cross uh, took place or began in a garden? You see, what we're reading about here in John chapter 18 is the the run-up to man's redemption. And it began in a garden. And the point that I want to make to you is simply this. That the run-up to man's destruction. That the run-up to man's failure. That the run-up to man's sin. It also began in a garden. The Garden of Eden. So many thousands of years before Jesus came To redeem the world. And that's the purpose that Jesus has. That's why he's going to the cross. That's why he is willfully and willingly laying down his life. Because of something that happened in another garden thousands of years. Thousands of generations on a previous occasion. Because in the original garden. In the garden of of Eden. There was a curse that came upon human beings. There was a a damnation that came upon human beings. And the purpose that Jesus has in the garden of Gethsemane is to break the curse, is to break the damnation. And in the garden of Gethsemane, the run up to the accomplishment of the uh, solving the problem of the fall of the curse of humanity, of the human predicament, the redemption of mankind. That's what Jesus is doing now and that's the purpose that he has. And all through the events of Jesus' last hours on this earth can, can be seen to be ticking off the boxes, the problems that had been raised in the Garden of Eden so many thousands of years previously. Let me just unpack that as I bring this message to a close a little bit further. You see in the Garden of Eden, the key word there was alienation. Separation leading to alienation. First of all, Adam and Eve, they were separated from God. You see, they were made to be with God. They were made to be part of God. They were made to have God as part of them. That was, the way, that was the way that they were created. But in the Garden of Eden, they lost that. That God dimension to their life was gone. That's what, that's what the Lord meant when he said, If you eat of the forbidden fruit, in that moment you shall surely die. That's what God meant. But They weren't just alienated from God. This huge barrier of sin that went up between them and God that made them run and hide. They were also alienated from each other. Human alienation. Human relationships began to deteriorate that moment in the Garden of Eden with the fall. All human relationships, it has this, it has the, that's when the seed of divorce was introduced. That's when the seed of uh, war was introduced. That's when the seed of uh, bickering and fighting was introduced. That's where the seed of malice was introduced. That's where the seed of uh, aggression and violence and crime, that's where it was sown in the Garden of Eden between Adam and Eve when they fell and they lost their relationship with God. That's the alienation and separation that they experienced. But even more than that, human beings, they were alienated from themselves. Adam and Eve lost their peace of mind. They were troubled by shame and guilt and fear. They lost their harmony within. And when Jesus began his run up to the cross in the garden of Gethsemane, those were the things he had in his mind. Those were the things that he came to solve. And in this second garden, this garden of Gethsemane, with his run up to the cross, Jesus begins the task of redeeming the world from the curse of the fall that had taken place in a garden so many generations prior. Now you see, when, when Jesus surrendered his will, do you know why he did that? He did that for his father. Jesus' surrender wasn't for you and for me. Jesus' surrender was for His heavenly Father. "I have come to do my Father's will," God said. Uh, Jesus said, "I have come to do what my father." And you see, the first um, purpose of the cross, the first purpose of the cross was not, not directed to you and me. The first purpose of the cross was directed towards God. That the heavenly judicial system would maintain its integrity. Because when the barriers went up, a holy God cannot come into contact with a sinful man. And as a result, there was a, a that that um, judgment had been passed upon human beings and that separation had been had been set. And because of God's judgment, Jesus had to die. That's why the first part of the cross is towards that. It's in New Testament, what Paul describes it as propitiation. It's turning away the wrath of God. Well then, you see, it not only was his, his surrender willing, but then he, he died upon a cross. Well, you see, that, that accomplished something else. That paid the price for your sin and for me. When Jesus died, it was for us. When he submitted himself, it was for his father. But when he died, it was for us. Because, you see, we carry this burden. We carry this giant, invisible bag, this filthy bag that's on our back, which is the bag of of guilt and shame. And we carry it, and it needs to be dumped somewhere. And we can't just cut it free and let it lie at the side of the road like an old wreck of a car. We can't just do that. It has to be disposed of properly. This guilt and and shame that that is ours in humanity needs to be taken to the cross. And the punishment of all of that needs to be carried out. And you and I deserve that punishment. But when Jesus died, it was for us. He took our punishment And that's why to be rid of this filthy, invisible bag of guilt that hangs upon our shoulder, we bring it to the foot of the cross and we leave it there where Jesus died. And as we leave our burden there, we can be forgiven. And we can let all of that uh, shame and, and guilt and filth, we can get rid of it. It's the only safe place for it to be disposed of. And as we kneel at the foot of the cross, we say, thank you, Jesus, for dying in our place that we may be forgiven. Well, you see, Jesus didn't stay at the cross. Sure he didn't. Because in the resurrection of Jesus, he gave us a hope that is beyond this life. Because this life as the Scripture, if we take it for the Scriptures, three score years and ten is what we can expect. But when Jesus rose from the dead, the resurrection gave us hope of life after death. That it's not just about what goes on in my life in this world. But that this world is a preparation for the next. And even more than that. Although that seems a lot to me. Even more than that. With the ascension of Jesus. He sent us the indwelling Holy Spirit. Who brings assurance of our faith. And who brings us peace within. And who brings us the ability to change and become more and more like Christ. Even here in this fallen world. Why did Jesus willingly go to the cross? Well he went because he loved us. Because he was concerned for us. But he went because God had a plan. And the plan involved his willing surrender. The plan involved his death upon the cross. The plan involved his resurrection. And the plan involved his ascension with the coming of the Holy Spirit. I must be uh, thorough and say that the plan hasn't quite been completed. (laughs) You might think, well, Mike, what more is there? Well, there's one more point. There's one more part of the plan, and that's the second coming of Jesus. That's the second coming of Jesus, and that's what we still await. You see, we can say thank you for all of the other points that I have raised, because they have already taken place, but we can't yet say thank you for the second coming, because it is yet to come. And we await it. And we mustn't forget about that. That's also part of the gospel message. We await the second coming of Jesus. The parousia. We should reintroduce. Maranatha. Hallelujah. Maranatha. The Lord comes. Maranatha. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. When all this fallen world will come to an end. And everything, everything but everything will be made new. Is that good news? I think so. On this second countdown to the cross of Christ, when Jesus has begun his run-up. Has God been speaking to you today? Where are you spiritually today? Where are you at? Maybe you're not a believer. Maybe today is the first day someone has taken the time to explain the gospel to you and oh boy, I've done my best and I've probably failed miserably. But I've done my best to to explain the gospel to you of why Jesus went to the cross. And maybe you've never given your life to Christ. Oh my dear friend, don't wait a moment longer. Give your life to Him today there's an old country and western gospel song that says, he's only a prayer away. And that's it. It's as simple as that. How do I become a Christian, Mike? Well, you bow with a sincere heart and you begin to pray. You begin to talk to Jesus as if he was sitting right beside you. And you begin to tell him about what you've learned, what I've told you today. Tell him about that you're thankful that he came to the cross. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Lord, that you died for me. Thank you, that you took away my sin. Thank you, that you can forgive me. Thank you, Lord, that you've sent the Holy Spirit to dwell within me. Your very Spirit, Lord Jesus. The Spirit of Jesus to dwell within me. Thank you, Lord, that you've done that. Lord, I want to become your follower. I want to become your disciple. I want to be I want to belong to you. Isn't it interesting in the text? I should have pointed it out. There's a little phrase that says. And Judas was standing with them. It's a telling phrase. You might be saying, Lord, I want to stand with you. I don't want to stand with anybody. I want to stand with them. I want to stand with you, Lord. Pray. Come to him in prayer. Maybe you're a backslider. Maybe you're like Judas. You started with all the potential." You started your Christian walk with all the potential, with all the opportunities, with all of the blessings that all of the other disciples started with. You started at the same place. And God called you just as sure as he called them. And you heard the same sermons and you saw the same miracles and you heard the same teaching. Come to him today. Come back to him. If you've drifted over the years, now he's calling you home calling you back that's the message that the Lord has for you today let's pray together as the band comes and takes their place thank you Lord for your willingness to go to the cross thank you Lord for your appeal to us today we hear your voice calling us back to yourself perhaps or calling us to yourself for the very first time calling us Lord to you to fulfill the plan that you came to the cross for. Not to stand with the world, but to stand with you, Lord Jesus. Come into our hearts, Lord. Send your spirit to cleanse us and forgive us for our sins. Send, your, send the blood, apply the blood of Christ to our hearts that we may be cleansed. And let us live for you from this day on. And we thank you